this class has in chapter 7 uh, is not only challenging and difficult, but it touches on issues and aspects of relationships that are so dear to us, and so we feel them heavily. I know that that's the case uh, for many of us, um, and praise God for having dealt gently with us, and I pray that we feel that's the case as we look through today's passage as well. Um, I do want to thank you for those who have filled in or submitted questions from that Q&A uh, app uh, over the last few weeks. Some of the questions that folk have asked here in the morning have been really helpful to address and answer in the evening as well. Uh, so it's been a benefit not just for those who have with us, but other congregation members. Uh, and Lauren and I have got planned out a series of answers. Uh, questions and answers that we'll be recording that we haven't had time to get into in our services. Uh, so if you've asked questions that we haven't addressed, um, our prayers will be able to address those this evening. Uh, they'll be available online by Tuesday. Uh, how about I pray? And we'll look at our final section uh, together this morning. Dearest Father, we have been reflecting on concerns and worries and joys that do consume so much of how we think about ourselves those who are dear to us and our world around us. Father, these concerns of relationships, intimacy, the griefs uh, of those relationships that haven't gone the way that we had hoped, or perhaps ever eventuated, uh, the desires for closer relationships with those who are precious to us, all bring with us anxieties and fears that can so often distract us from your attentive kindness to us. Father, we do ask that as we read your word today, we hear your words as that of the love of God, uh, who is ever attentive to the fears and worries and anxieties that we bring with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Absorbed, consumed, engrossed, captivated, and immersed. There's a certain delight, isn't there, in being able to completely lose ourselves in a reality of our own imagining and choosing. Perhaps it's a career that we're engrossed in, or a TV streaming service that we're most absorbed by. Perhaps it's the pursuit of a promising friendship that most engrosses us and consumes our attention and our affections. Or perhaps we're most absorbed by family life or the seeking after of the next ones. The thing is, when we're completely engrossed by something, whether it's a relationship or just what we're watching on streaming service, whenever we're engrossed by something, our horizons begin to contract. Our perspective begins to narrow. Our whole world can tend to telescope in on, shrink down into that one solitary concern. That single concern can so demand our attention, so colonise every inch of our imagination, so entirely fill our entire vision, our whole vision, that we cease being able to see other realities around us. And while well, there's a certain delight in being able to completely lose ourselves in a reality of our own imagining and our own choosing, we also know that there are, there are dangers that go along with that kind of lost perspective. Perhaps you've witnessed it with a newly paired up couple. The more deeply engrossed in one another that couple 
engage with others outside their exclusive circle seems to shrink and contract. Now, if you notice that in the relationship to others, that you felt yourself. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul has been addressing a group of believers who are deeply engrossed in issues relating to their own social status and standing. Now, this anxiety, this absorption, this social standing, expressed itself both in spiritual spheres of life as well as in their relational spheres of life as well. You might remember from last week, Paul's already acknowledged how especially engrossing and captivating our intimate relationships with others have the potential to become. How much, how such relationships might even seem sometimes to irresistibly demand consummation and satisfaction in the intimacy of a sexual embrace. Uh, have a look at me. These verses we touched on very briefly last week. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Where Paul gives recognition to the way in which our most intimate relationships can sometimes even demand that we consummate, satisfy them in a sexual embrace. Uh, verses 8 to 9, uh, two verses that we touched on last week. Therefore, wrote, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried until I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, for the couple who long to embrace one another in sexual unity, Paul has no hesitation in commending the exclusivity of marriage to them as a genuine God-honoring course of heritage. But we'd be mistaken to assume from Paul's words there that they're just some grudging admission that God's call for self-control is really not that realistic after all. You know, he calls people to remain as they are, but of course we all know that that's not possible, so Carry on, get married to your friend. No, sexually chaste believers, that is, believers who are sexually faithful and obedient, are not unicorns. They're not mythical creatures existing only in the naive, the most naive of Christian imaginations. These precious brothers and sisters are present here with us in this very room. Whatever you might personally assume about the impossibility or the impracticality of God's call to chastity, that is, to sexually faithful, self-controlled life of obedience, there are those living amongst us right now who are God in exactly that way. In today's passage, Paul turns his attention to those to address those of us for whom marriage or the desire for sexual intimacy has a tendency to become all-engrossing, all-consuming, worrying and anxiety. Have a look at the, uh, the opening of the passage uh, that we had read to us quite a read just a moment ago. Uh, chapter 7, verse 25 is where today's passage begins. Paul writes in verse 25, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a Do not look for a wife. 
But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now about virgins, or virgins. Here Paul isn't just addressing general principles about marriage, you know, in general speaking terms, so to speak. He's referring specifically to those in terms of virgins. In referring to virgins here, Paul isn't simply speaking about those who haven't ever experienced any sexual activity, as we generally tend to use the word. As we'll see later on in today's passage in verse 36, the term virgin here is being referred to, used to refer to those young women who were engaged or betrothed to be married. It was an obligation that these young women, these virgins, often didn't get to choose for themselves. They often entered into these betrothal or these engagements when they were young teenagers. As you might remember, just to give a bit of a Christmassy theme to today's Working to Fruit 1 Corinthians, as was the case for Joseph's betrothal to Mary, Jesus' own mother, young women or virgins were often betrothed to a future husband while they were still young, before they reached. And to break, to call off such a pledge of marriage or betrothal was a serious matter indeed. You might recall that before an angel appears to talk him out of it, this is what Joseph had been considering doing on the quiet when he discovered that Mary was pregnant with Jesus. He considered calling off this betrothal that he had to Mary. To call off a betrothal was a significant had significant social consequences as a result, which is why Joseph, as a righteous man, decided to do it quietly so as not to publicly shame his betrothal. That's the kind of situation that Paul is addressing in these verses. And shaping the advice that Paul gives here concerning these virgins, these betrothed arrangements, is what Paul terms the present crisis. Now, what on is the situation that Paul is addressing or referring to? What is the context that Paul is addressing? Some have wondered whether Paul is referring to religious persecution that might have been creating pressure for the early Christian community. Others have suggested maybe that it was a famine that was exerting economic pressure on the ancient world at the time, and so it made it difficult to, to carry out marriage and to look, for a, look after a growing family. But interestingly, every other time that Paul uses this word crisis in his letter to the Corinthians, it's translated instead as the word compulsion. Actually, later on in chapter 9 of this same chapter, <coughs> Paul says that he is compelled, externally compelled, to preach the gospel. Later on in today's passage that we'll look at in a moment, Paul addresses those who don't feel it held, externally pressured, to go through with an engagement that they were a part of. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes that it's better to give generously, to give charity freely, than because it is someone else is compelling us to do so. I think that this so-called crisis that Paul is addressing here are those who felt compelled or obligated with respect to these marriages or these betrothals. Probably many of them, some of them have entered into the 
given how pervasive slavery, idolatry, and immorality were in cities such as Corinth. You can imagine the anxiety that a new Christian believer might experience about those obligations that they had perhaps entered into even before they'd become followers of the Lord Jesus. But as it's been Paul's approach throughout this whole chapter, really, that these new believers are free to remain as they presently are. It is good to remain engaged in part, Paul says to the Corinthians here. Are you already pledged or betrothed to be married? Paul says, there is no need to be free from or anxiously free from those previously made obligations. On the other hand, if someone is presently free from such an obligation or Paul affirms that it's good for them to remain free or avoid entering into such a marriage agreement in advance. Why will you pledge yourself to some future marriage commitments when you can't know with confidence what troubles you might be enslaving yourself to? Is how Paul speaks about it in last week's passage. What troubles you might be obligating yourself to endure in the future? Paul is angry that we don't needlessly obligate ourselves in a way that may ultimately prove to compromise our devotion to the Lord himself. Now, Paul explains some of these things in the verses that follow immediately. Have a look with me at verse 29. Verse 29. Paul writes, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it is not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. assessment of marriage. In fact, throughout this whole chapter, every time he says something, he has taken pains to affirm the goodness of marriage as God has given it to us in practice. I do know that with all the qualifications that Paul has been speaking about in the chapter, some of us have felt the weight of that, as if Paul maybe isn't really genuine when he speaks of the goodness of marriage, and he really thinks it's pretty, pretty average on the whole, actually. But I don't think that's the case. Paul genuinely Yet as good and genuinely beautiful as the things of this world are, they are not the believer's ultimate horizon. They are not ultimately what we are to be most devoted to or most engrossed in. Marriage belongs to this life alone. It won't be a part of the new creation. Both our present mourning and grief and our present happiness will only last a moment in comparison with eternity. The things that we possess and purchase will belong to us only briefly in the great scheme of things. We are not to live as if this present life was our ultimate horizon, a horizon on which our attention is beyond which everything good goes dark and vanishes. 
In verses 32 to 35, Paul illustrates how marriage really is one intense sphere of life in which we might easily become distracted from our ultimate horizon, that is, our devotion to the Lord Jesus. But marriage itself is certainly not unique in these respects. We can likewise become engrossed in our present mourning and grief. We can become engrossed in our present happinesses and joys. Our ownership of possessions can likewise become our ultimate horizon, so that our attention is taken away, distracted from our devotion to God Himself. Paul is just reflecting here how marriage itself our marriage itself can become a similar kind of distraction from our devotion to the Lord. Indeed, as Paul says in verse 31, anything of this world that we might consistently become engrossed in has the potential to distract us from our devotion to the Lord. Our Paul's primary concern here is not ultimately just whether we have a married status or a single status to fill in on our census form. Paul's primary concern summed up there for us in verse 35. Have a look down in verse 35 with me. Paul says, I am saying this all for your own not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. I sometimes wonder whether we read this passage as if Paul really is saying, I write this to you so that even though you might think marriage is okay, you will really decide to be single. But that's not what Paul pleads, that's not what Paul desires for us. He wants us to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul has no desire to disregard our present mornings and grief. He has no wish to cast a shadow over our present happiness. Paul has no interest in denying us ownership of possessions, nor in restricting our present freedom to joyfully embrace that. Rather, Paul is pleading that we not take upon ourselves any obligations in the present that might needlessly darken or cast a shadow over our ultimate horizon, our devotion to the Lord Jesus Himself. Now, the obligations and ambiguities of prearranged betrothal agreements are not the kind of concerns that many of us will ever have to navigate. Even arranged marriages, as they're practiced in Australia, are not quite the same as the kinds of obligated betrothal arrangements that the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians, were involved in. But even though we won't typically have to face the same kind of situation as Paul is addressing to the Corinthians, the key question Paul would have us ask ourselves remains unfailingly relevant. In fact, I printed it there in bold on your service sheets. You might notice under point at the bottom of point C. The question Paul would have us ask ourselves, whether we are married or unmarried, or somewhere transitioning between the two, is not simply whether we're ever free to engage in the things of this world, but rather which options that are presently before us are most likely to be our devotion to that's the question of Paul would have us go away reflecting on today. Which options presently before us are most likely to deepen our devotion to the Lord? And Paul closes our chapter by walking us through two concrete scenarios of what it 
least with the Corinthians to ask that question of themselves. Uh, the first example uh, begins in verse 36. We'll have, uh, make sure you've got that open then, have a glance at it in a moment. Uh, this first example in verse 36 is typically presented as an in principle decision that Paul is presenting before the Corinthians between choosing either marriage or a lifetime of permanent singleness, and which is better between the two to choose. I'm not sure if that's exactly the most helpful way of phrasing what Paul's concern is in these verses. Uh, have a look with me at verse 36. We read this first scenario and then spend a little while reflecting. Chapter 7, verse 36. Paul writes, If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not seen. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own life, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries a virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does bad. In these verses, Paul is primarily reflecting on the difference between making a decision out of obligation, out of social obligation, versus making a decision that's in line with one's own convictions and will. Paul is addressing a situation in which two Christian believers are already betrothed to be married. That is, they're already parted to a social agreement to marry a virgin or a young woman. We don't know whether that was an agreement presented into the is a social obligation that he has undertaken with the virgin and her family to marry her once she comes of age. He is engrossed in concerns about whether he's acting honourably, whether he's honouring his earthly obligations, whether he's filling his contracted commitments to this young woman. And Paul says that if he marries the virgin, he, he does a good thing. He's not sick. He need not be crippled by a paralyzing anxiety that God might condemn him or that he is doing something that he shouldn't do. If he goes ahead and fulfills his betrothal obligations, he has done good things. Even so, he says, better the situation the second. The second man is not under the same compulsion, the passage says. He is not bound by the same kind of social or contractual obligations. He is free to express his own mind in his decision about this marriage. He can express his own will freely. For whatever reason, he's not under the same compulsions as the first man is. He is able to make whichever decision best nurtures his own devotion to the Lord, without potentially being compelled by external social obligations. The first man honours God in his decision to get married. But the second scenario is preferable to because the man is free to decide how he is expressing his devotion to God in his decision. Now, while none of us will find ourselves obligated to pursue marriage in quite the way that ancient betrothal practice 
Texas to men of the Corinthians. It is still true, isn't it, that we're not all equally free in the decisions that we make with respect to marriage. Imagine someone who comes to Christ as an adult. Perhaps they're already in a de facto relationship with someone who perhaps doesn't even share their newfound devotion to the Lord Jesus. Perhaps they even already have children together. Now perhaps they are in the midst of trying for children through an IVF process. Perhaps they already share a home together in which they're caring for an elderly or sick family member who lives with them. For the believer in that situation or that circumstance, seeking to honour those existing obligations, even through the decision to marry their partner, may be a good and pleasing decision to God. A way to honour God, to express their devotion to God, even though it might ruminate many troubles and difficulties of being united with someone who doesn't share their common faith. That question that was asked last week in the evening service is one that I expect will increasingly demand our careful and gracious thought as a church community. The question was asked what about a same sex couple? Perhaps even a couple, a same-sex couple, who have been married in the eyes of the state. Perhaps they're even raising children who have developed their own. How might we as a church respond to, how might we be called to respond, should one or both of that couple wish to join our church household at some point, having come to know and to trust the Lord Jesus himself? Marriage is not an object that the scriptures hold over. The same sex And yet we are still beholden as a church community to help new believers find ways of honouring their existing obligations while not undermining their devotion to the Lord, which is the ultimate horizon that God calls them to fix their eyes on. As you can see, can't you, that the things, the kind of decisions and ambiguities that the Corinthians were struggling with as they've just come into faith. And not all that different from the kinds of ambiguities and difficult questions that we ourselves need to reflect on as we decide what does it look like to fix our eyes on the horizon, not so it's just immediately before us, but how, how we might express our devotion to the Lord in every situation and circumstance we find ourselves. Dear friends, where we are free from any prior constraints and obligations, in our relationships, where we are free from any prior obligations that we've entered into, which is clearly the case for the majority of those who haven't yet been married and are hoping to be. For them, Paul's direction is short and simple. Have a look at me at our final verses of chapter 7, uh, looking at verses 39 and Paul writes there. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if he stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It may at first seem a little bit counterintuitive. But I'd suggest that many of us who are currently unmarried, in 
enjoy the same kind of freedom that the widow in this passage enjoys. Like the widows, especially those perhaps of our evening congregation who have never been married, we are typically free to express our own convictions in the decisions that we choose to make in and around marriage. Many who have never been married and are thinking about being married for the first time don't have any obligations externally imposed upon them that would constrain how they decide to serve. Most of the unmarried among us are not already bound by obligations they committed to prior to becoming Christians. We are free to either refrain from marriage or to be careful and deliberate about which other believer we do choose to marry in order, it says, to nurture our devotion. Notice, though, that Paul, in this passage, Paul can only conceive of the widow, and I think this goes for anyone who is free to be married. Paul can only conceive of this person marrying in the Lord. That is, marrying another Christian believer. For choosing to marry someone who is devoted only to the things of this world can't possibly deepen our and nurture our devotion to the Lord Jesus himself, who is taking us towards the future. I was in a conversation with an unmarried woman just in the last week or two, who was reflecting with me on the decisions that she had made that had led to her currently being single. She's been single her whole life. She's in her 40s now. There were periods of life for her in which she felt that marriage might have compromised her maturing devotion to Christ. That is, early on in her Christian life, she, she felt that to enter into marriage would have compromised her ability to come to terms with the Christian faith and to grow in maturity and goodness. And so she had decided not to enter into marriage too quickly. There were situations later on in which she did have opportunities to pursue relationships with unbelievers but which likewise, she decided, would have compromised her devotion to Christ. And that left her at this point, sometimes second-guessing, questioning, feeling the weight and the burden, the cost of the decisions that she had made along the way. Even though she was firmly set and pursuing the same kind of course, her devotion to the Lord as she had always been, it didn't mean that she didn't have second-guessing sense of loss But friends, this woman is not to be pitied, nor given dating advice. She's to be honoured and imitated amongst us as Christians. Her horizon was and continues to be her devotion to the Lord. In deciding either to be married or to not be married, it was her devotion to the Lord Jesus that had driven her. That was the horizon on which her eyes were I can only hope that my own daughter might make the same kind of decisions that she has made. Not that my daughter would choose to be single, or any of my sons would choose to be single. That's not the ultimate decision that Paul is urging us to make here, but rather that they would make decisions that enable and nurture and deepen their devotion to the Lord Jesus himself. 
is the core that chapter 7 is laying out. And we should honour highly all those who express that kind of devotion in all the different and varied ways in their lives, in and through either marriage or choosing to work out Have a Dearest Father, we confess that we find it so easy to become engrossed, absorbed and captivated by the very good whether it be the circumstances of happiness, whether it be possessions, whether it even be marriage itself. Father, we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit so that these things might not be our ultimate horizon, but rather devotion to the Lord might be what most captivates our being. Strengthen us to pursue our obedience to and devotion to you in every circumstance that each of us might find ourselves. Father, help us and use us to encourage and honour one another when we make those decisions to be devoted to the Lord, whatever degrees and difficulties might be at times in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Friends, we're going to...